rough month, rough year. Lord, we, we lay that all at your feet this morning. Lord, we pray that you've been using that to grow us, to know you better, Lord. Lord, we pray that you would take this word, your word this morning, and plant it in our hearts. And Lord, so we give you this time. We pray that you would give us ears to hear what you have to say to us. Lord, teach us through your word this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. How many of you had an active imagination as a kid? Oh, good. How many of you still have an active imagination? That's even better because we're going to imagine something real quick. Imagine with me for a minute. There's a tree out front, and there's two bird nests in this tree. And in one bird nest, uh, there's mama birds in both bird nests. And one bird nest, the mama bird's running around painting, getting the limbs all ready, getting everything ready. She's reading up on what to do when the babies are hatched and all that. The other one's just sitting there. She's just sitting there waiting. And uh, the first one looks over and says, you're not going to be ready when the babies come. And she goes, they'll get here when they get here. They'll hatch when they're ready. The other mama's like, no, no, I got I to gotta read up. I, you know, they said it's going to be another three weeks. And so I, I got the, a week goes by. The first mama, she's still frantically painting and getting the, the, all the stuff put together for the baby. The second mama's just sitting over there, and she's like, oh, oh, hey, I think they're hatching. The, mom, the first mama's like, no, 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 not yet. The book says next week, next week, the book says they're not ready yet. We need to wait. You need to stop them. And the first mama's like, they'll get here when they get here. They'll, they'll be ready when they're ready. And she just kind of casually goes about her day. A week later, the second mama, uh, her, her babies are all hatched. They're all out and chirping and everything. She's been feeding them and stuff. The first mama is, oh, they're hatching. My babies are hatching. And so she's helping pull the, pull the uh, egg shell away. And she's, she's helping, you know, clean everything and, and get everything ready for them. And she's, she's making sure they don't go anywhere near the edge of the, the nest or anything. And and she's just frantically working. And she looks over at the second mama, and the, mo- and the second mama is nudging one of the little chicks towards the edge of the nest. And the first mama's like, what are you doing? Well, they got to learn how to fly. Oh, no, the book said we need to show them this. And, and I read this, we need to do that. And so the second mama, she looks over. The first mama looks over at the second mama, and she's like, what are you doing? doing he's right on the edge you stop him stop and the the second mama nudges that little bird out of the nest the first mama she's so shocked and horrified she turns her back she can't look she's she's like i can't believe you just killed your child and she's frantic she's you know keeping hers under her wings and right inside the center of the nest so they don't get near the edge of the nest another couple weeks go by the first mama All her baby chicks are fat and happy, and she won't let them near the nest. She keeps teaching them. Now, when you fly, it's going to be like this, and when you land, this is what you're going to want to do. She keeps teaching them from these books what to do. She hasn't looked over at the second mama. She can't look at her because it it really bothered her that she kicked her baby out of the nest. And then another week goes by, and at this time, the leaves are all off the tree. It's fall, and this hawk that we have that hangs out at the top of the building back here, comes flying around front, and, ooh, lunch. Now, I don't need to tell you what else happens. You guys are all smart enough adults here. 
the difference between these two sets of chicks was their maturity. The first group grew up, never matured. The second group, as they grew up, they matured. They learned how to fly. They were able to get away when the hawk came. And as people age, as birds age, as plants age, growth, it's natural, it's normal, it's expected, right? When you take your your child to the pediatrician, the doctor has this chart, and they're like, okay, your son is within this percentile, and your daughter is a little tall for her age. And they, We do that, don't we? We gauge growth. But at some point, we've stopped gauging growth with certain things. Because we have a serious immaturity problem in America today and in our churches. Many studies lately have proven that today's young adults are far more immature than their counterparts just 30, 40, 50 years ago. A hundred years ago, 17 and 18-year-olds were in the trenches in Europe fighting for their country. And today, heaven forbid, they have to pick up a phone and make their own doctor's appointment. Or call to see if the store has their favorite brand of soy milk. While technology has played a role in this, the largest reason is because parents over the last 30, 40, 50 years, myself included, have become child-centric, or for lack of a better term, helicopter parents. We don't want to see them get hurt. We don't want to see them go through and suffer the same things we did. So we try to protect them from that. And, and part of the side effect of that is they haven't grown up. We do that in the churches too. We protect people from sin and talking about hell and stuff. We, we protect people's ears because we don't want to hurt their feelings. While these are good intentions, we don't let people get a chance to work through problems, to sort through things. Everything's handed to them. Everything's done for them. They, we don't experience growth like we should. It's not just young adults. It's, it's Christians, too. A recent study, less than 24% of 24% of Americans who claim to be born-again Christians. are Less than 24% of Americans claim to be born-again Christians. Let me say that again. About 80% of those only open their Bible on a Sunday morning when they're asked to. Regular church attendance is considered one time a month. How do we expect to grow? How do we expect to mature? We have more access to awesome Bible teachers and preachers than ever before. In fact, on my phone, I have more access to study helps than preachers 30 years ago did. When Christians should be growing in their faith, faith is declining at rapid rates. Most Christians now have more in common with that first set of baby chicks than the second set. 
And let me tell you, spiritual growth is absolutely necessary for the Christian life. Because when troubles come, when Satan attacks, when false teaching creeps in, if we are immature, our faith will not stay standing. We will not remain faithful. We must be growing in our faith. We must be growing in our knowledge and understanding of God and of the Bible, or else we will be swept away when our faith is challenged. We will be carried away when the hawks come. This morning we're in the book of Ephesians. We're going to pick up in verse 15 of chapter 1. I hope, I pray that you're reading along with me for two reasons. One, so you can see I'm not just making this stuff up. And two, this is God's word given to us so that we can grow in spiritual maturity. Amen? So Ephesians chapter 1, we'll pick up in verse 15. If you're having a hard time finding it, I'm sure one of your neighbors have found it. Just grab their Bible or ask them to help. Yeah. Um, if you need a Bible, there are Bibles in these little bookshelves on the, on the outside walls. So, but we are going to be, we are going to pick up uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. Let, let me read. For this very reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul starts out, for this reason. Now, since we're picking up in the middle of this chapter, let me summarize what, the, what he's talking about. The opening statement of the first 14 verses can be summarized by God has made salvation available to all of us. And so Paul says, for this reason, I thank God for you because you've received that salvation. I'm hearing reports of your faith in Jesus and your love for God's people. He says, thank God you're saved. This is, this is the desire of every evangelical pastor in a pulpit this morning that his congregants would be saved and would know God and would love one another. And if you're here this morning, you're saved and you're not loving one another, I'm just going to start out real quick. You need to repent. But if you're here this morning and you don't know what I mean by being saved, and we've talked about this several times this morning already, I'm not going to assume that everybody knows what it means to be saved because I talked to a young man the other day and I said, hey, share with me your salvation experience. And he goes, well... I was raised in a godly home, a Christian home, and I went to church. And I said, funny, I like when I'm driving down Powers and I see that sign on the side of the Krispy Kreme donut shop that when it lights up, I like when I could go in and get a free donut off the conveyor belt. Does that make me a donut? And he goes, are you mocking me? I said, no, I'm just asking a question because it's the same thing you just told me about your salvation. You see, we are all sinful people. We all have willfully disobeyed God's moral law, whether in thought or in action. We are all sinners. And God, being perfect and holy and just, must punish sin. The Bible says that the penalty of sin is death, not just physical death, but (coughs) punishment that when we die, When we take our last breath, we will wake up in eternity. And if we are not saved, we will wake up in eternity paying the punishment in hell for our sins, for our disobedience. But 
God. The two strongest words in the Bible, but God. Sent Jesus, who came and lived a sinless life, a perfect life, the life we couldn't live. He died the death that we were supposed to die and, and was raised to life, displaying his power over sin and death, so that all who believe in him may be saved. The Apostle Paul says that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you will be saved. It's as simple as that. Do I believe that my faith in Jesus forgives my sins and makes me right with God? That's salvation. Salvation in a nutshell is believing in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and to be made right with God. And so if you're here this morning and you're not saved, or you want to make that decision, it's simple, it's easy. Just have faith in Jesus. And if you've done that this morning, afterward, please come talk to me or one of the other pastors or one of the other elders because we want to help you navigate the Christian life and navigate and understand what it means to be saved. Okay? So I, I, don't, I didn't want to take for granted that everybody knew what it meant to be saved. So I wanted to get that, out, get that taken care of so we can all understand that this is why Paul is so thankful. The people have put their faith and trust in Jesus. And he says, I thank God for your faith and love. Faith and love. Faith in Jesus is the foundation of our salvation. Then there's love. Love is kind of like the proof of our salvation. The Apostle John in 1 John 4 writes, Let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Remember, I gave you a chance earlier to repent if you're not loving, but uh, I digress. Paul elsewhere writes that we, we can do whatever we want, but if it's without love, we're nothing. We've done nothing. It's all vanity. You can truly love, but not without faith in God. You cannot truly love as God loves without faith in God. Because real love for one another only comes from God. And if you have faith but no love, you're either in rebellion to the command of God or just really immature. And so Paul says, ever since I heard about your faith and love, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. I'm thankful that you've got a good foundation. But beyond that, he says, I'm constantly remembering you or mentioning you in my prayers. And in verse 17, he says, I keep asking that God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Paul says, I thank God you're saved. But I keep asking that God would grow your faith now, that would make you more mature, to give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Basically, I pray that God is building upon your foundation. Because it's one thing to get saved and love one another, but the Christian life doesn't stop there. You see, we can be carried away by a false wind of doctrine. When trials come, we can... Oh, God doesn't care. If we don't know God, we, we won't trust Him. And so growing in maturity is knowing God better. This is why Paul says that God would, he prays that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation <coughs> so that they can be more prepared for the Christian life. 
this phrase, the spirit of wisdom and revelation can be summed up with one word, maturity. This is what he's talking about. In Colossians, he writes, we continually ask God to fill you with knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, so you may have great endurance and patience. Sounds like a good definition of maturity to me. God, He prays that God would give the spirit of wisdom, and revelation. Wisdom is not just insight or specialized knowledge, but it's knowing what to do with that knowledge. In Exodus 35, God instructs Moses to choose certain people to help build the tabernacle. And he says, choose these people in whom I have filled with my spirit to work with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with craftsmanship. See, God's Spirit gave them wisdom so they not only knew what they were going to do, but knew how to use that wisdom in doing what they were going to do. This is what helps us in this Christian life. Not just knowing that God is a God of love or, or God is all-powerful, but how to utilize that knowledge. Uh, also, revelation. Now, revelation, we think, oh, that's some divine secret that's unfolded for us, right? That's not necessarily what he's talking about here. It is a divine secret. It's God, his power, his love, the hope he has for us, all that. It's understanding more about God so that we can know him better. Uh, Paul elsewhere says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. So we don't even know what God has prepared for us. But it was to us <clears throat> that God revealed these things by his spirit. And we have received God's Spirit so we can know the wonderful things God has freely given us. As the Spirit reveals God and His will for us, as we receive revelation of Him, we come to know God better and we learn to rely on Him more. And the more we grow in revelation and wisdom of God, the easier it becomes to trust Him. This is why wisdom and revelation are necessary. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. Anybody face trouble? Anybody face trials? Yes, Jesus was not lying to us. But he said, take heart, for I have overcome the world. The Christian life. Some of the writers of the New Testament refer to it as a race that we run with endurance. And this Christian life, it's kind of like the American Ninja um, course or the wipeout obstacle course that we watch on TV. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, there, there's always an obstacle. There's always something swinging that we got to duck under so we don't get hit and knocked off the course. And when we trust God, <coughs> He promises to help us, to be there for us. When we grow in maturity, we know that we can trust God to be there for us, to help us. And that's what he's talking about. Sin and immaturity are the downfall of every backslidden Christian. They're the reason behind this huge deconstruction movement that's sweeping through our churches these days, where Christians doubt and turn away from their faith. 
They are the reason why professing Christians turn to something other than God to help them. Oh, thank you. I've known... Thank you. That I would be teaching this for about two weeks now. And as usual, God usually has me learn a couple lessons along the way as I'm preparing to teach you guys. And as I began to read and study this passage, I started to experience some hurt and some pain. It's been a rough two weeks. Uh, Two people... They don't know each other, but they're very dear to my heart. I've watched them. I've witnessed both of them walk away from God. Sin and immaturity took out two people that I know well. Troubles became obstacles to their running. And instead of tackling them head on with God's help, They both seemingly have turned to substances to cope with the difficulties. They turn to the bottle, they turn to pills, instead of trusting that God was in control. This is why spiritual immaturity, or spiritual maturity, I mean, is so important for the life of the believer. Because if we knew him better, we would know that God has plans for us. Not for destruction, but for a hopeful future. That God will never leave us nor forsake us. That God is our strength and our help in time of need. This is what it means to know God more. This is Paul's prayer for this church. And I don't mean that, oh, I know about God. I read, about, I read him in his book. It's, I know God. I got a tattoo on my arm. God is faithful. I got that because God taught me that lesson. I know God because I experienced him working in and through my life. And that's what Paul is praying for this church. Let's keep reading. Uh, We're in verse 18. As I pray, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance to his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Paul says, my prayer is this, that the eyes of your heart may be opened or enlightened so you can see and understand and comprehend the hope that we have in Jesus, the inheritance that awaits us and the power of God for us who believe. I don't believe it is coincidence that Paul picked these three things. Because as we look around the the world today, outside and inside the walls of our churches, we are experiencing firsthand where the void of these three things are causing problems. The first void is the loss of hope. Did you know the U.S. is the only non-third world country where mortality rates are climbing, not declining, because of preventable deaths? or suicide, or opioid and other drug overdoses, or other poor health-related issues. We're the only country where it 
death is going up because of our own choices. I'm good. Um, the news offers us no hope. I mean, who can stand to watch the news half the time anymore? It's so depressing. The government, I, I don't want to get political here, but the government offers us no hope. Just look what happened to the, re, the response in Maui. That should tell you that they're not coming. In fact, I think it was, uh, wasn't it Ronald Reagan who famously said the nice, nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help? I mean, let's be honest, they're not here to help us. <coughs> because there's a whole generation who have given up. They don't have hope. There's no hope for a future. So they feel like, why try? Or worse yet, why continue? The second void that's left is a lack of goals. You see, without goals, there's no motivation. Do we see any motivation these days in people? Surveys have shown that 83% of respondents don't even have goals. The amount of young people looking to get into a career is plummeting. Most would rather sit around and do nothing. In fact, uh, through counseling and stuff here at the church, I know of young women who complain that their husband, all he does is work and then he comes home and plays video games all night. No motivation. Or young women who are like, or young men who are like, I'm facing divorce because my wife has found somebody new. She got bored with me. No motivation, no goals. Whatever happened to till death do apart? Whatever happened to, okay, can't wait till I'm 18. I'm going to move out of my parents' house. I'm going to start my own business. I'm going, to, I'm going to make my future. Whatever happened to that kind of attitude? We don't have it anymore. The other day I saw a video, and this 30-something was complaining on this video that his dad stopped paying for his cell phone bill at 30. And then I, I caught another video where this, Young lady was crying <coughs> because uh, she had to work an eight-hour shift one day. No goals. We have no goals. We have no motivation. In fact, the, the young people in general these days, their, their goals are the next big movie, the next person to try to sleep with, the next meal. They don't have goals. Them aren't goals. And then the third void that's left is a loss of power. Not just personal power to overcome or power to change my situation, but believing in a higher power to change my situation. At a youth group, a girl in the youth group once told me that my generation ruined this planet, so there's no hope for her generation because not even God could save this planet now. And I'm like, are you serious? And she goes, yeah. You guys have killed off all the turtles and the whales and the penguins and, and you've dirtied the oceans and the rivers and, and there's no hope, so why even try? Uh, and I was like, but, but God could take care of things. And she didn't want to hear it. She didn't want it. Which leads us to no hope in a higher power where we see uh, falling church attendance. Barna did a research study recently that found that 38 past, 38% of pastors are considering leaving full-time ministry indefinitely, all the time. They've given up hope in a higher power. They apparently 
don't experience the power of God working in and through their lives and through their congregations anymore. We have no goals. We have no drive. We have no motivation. We have no hope. We have nothing. The common line of thinking anymore is, there's no hope, so why make the attempt? We couldn't do anything anyway. It's too big of a problem. You know what that is? That's the thinking of an immature person. That's a four-year-old or a teenager saying that. Y'all know four-year-olds and teenagers. They're like, oh, I give up. <laughs> so <coughs> not, that's not the sound. That's not what comes from an adult with experience. Mature people understand there's something greater than ourselves. We understand that there's always going to be something and that we have to have hope in something else. We understand that we need to set goals in this life or we will become dis discouraged and depressed, which is why Paul prays that the eyes of their heart would be opened so that they know, may know these things. And then he lists the three things that he wants them to know. The hope to which he has called you. The hope that God will do for us all that he has promised to do for us. The writer of Hebrews calls hope the anchor of the soul, when he says we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. That sounds like hope for me. All hope is not lost. We're not stranded at sea, floating around, and the sharks are circling us. No, God has promised to never leave us or forsake us. <clears throat> Jesus promised that he's coming back for us. He promised his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to myself. That where I am, you may be there also. That's hope. When we look around this world, that's hope. Secondly, Paul prays that they may know the riches of the inheritance that awaits us. Not only is he preparing a place for us, but 1 Peter 3, 1, 3 and 4 tells us that our inheritance is kept in heaven for us. The God, out of God's great mercy, he has given us new birth to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade that's kept in heaven for you. And a few verses later, in case we're curious, Peter tells us what this hope is. He says, the outcome of your faith some translations say, or the reward for trusting Jesus is the salvation of your souls. Knowing that God, that God will send Jesus back for us and knowing that we will one day be saved from this life of pain, misery, sin, death, that should give us hope. Look into the future. for This is not some pipe dream or empty promise, but rather the inheritance is waiting for us. It's already there. The salvation of our souls is already awaiting us. We just have to meet up with it. It's the goal or the prize that Paul was looking for when he said, I run with endurance. Thirdly, Paul prays that we may know the power of God for those of us who believe. Paul's prayer is that we would understand the strength of the power of God. And it's at work in our lives. To the church of Philippi, he writes, Be confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the coming of Jesus. 
So, yeah, we've got an inheritance. We have a hope. But we also know that God will not leave us. He's going to work in us to completion, to bring us to completion. If we only look at what God has done in, sal- in saving us, if we only look at little things that go on, we kind of get nearsighted a little. And we, we don't think that God could do big things. I experienced that. I, I, to be honest with you guys, I kind of gave up a little hope for my two friends this week. And then God reminded me, hey, if I was powerful enough to save you from the pit of sin you're in, don't you think I can save them? And I was like, okay. I'm learning these lessons as I'm studying, okay? So if, if God's powerful enough to save sinners and to resurrect Jesus from the dead, then my little puny trial that I'm going through right now is nothing for him. Okay? We need to remember that. We need to, that's where maturity comes from, when we know that. And we, we learn that God will be faithful. These things are true. These three things are the markers that Paul says are spiritual maturity. Because we know we can stand on these three things. When the times come, when the tough times come, we can stand upon these things. For the immature, they'll give up. They'll lose hope. They'll lose sight of the prize. They'll fail to realize that God is powerful enough to help them. They'll turn to a bottle or a pill. But for the spiritual mature, we will not lose hope. We will not lose sight of the prize. We will look to God's help in time of trouble. And we will know that he is there and he's faithful. And that he's working all things for the good of those who love him. He's working in all things. We love that verse when times are going good. But when we're wading through the downstairs and our septic pipe is backed up and we're ankle deep in water, we don't want somebody to quote that verse to us, do we? Because we're like, God, how can you be working in this? I'm going to have to spend money on this. So continuing verse 19, Paul says that that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted. So the power that he has for us is the same power that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every name that is invoked not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The power for us who believe is the same power that raised Christ from the dead, the same power that seated him at the right hand of God, the same power that placed all things, say it with me, all things, we need to remember that, all things under his feet and appointed him head over the church. And the church is meant to be his physical representation of his body here on earth. How do we know that God has the power to do all this? Because sin and death couldn't stop him. These are two things that we are absolutely power, powerless against in this life. Sin and death. We're mortal. We can't avoid death. We can't stop it. We can't prolong it. I know from my experience in life that when it's your turn, it's your turn. You're not going to stop it. 
We can't overcome sin, can we? Who here struggles with sin? I do. We all do. We can't overcome sin on our own. But God did. Through Jesus, he conquered both. And therefore, he has proved that he's able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond what we ask. No other power is as powerful as Jesus and the power of God. Good or evil, nothing can compare or come close to the power of God. His power, his authority, it's absolute. It's over everything. That's what Paul's saying here. By placing everything under his feet, meaning that everything has been made to submit or become subservient to Jesus Christ. Everything. God appointed Jesus to be the head over everything for the church as well. <clears throat> Meaning that Jesus is the leader of the church. And we are under his power and authority. He is there to protect and lead the church. Jesus told Peter, I will build my church and the powers of hell will not prevail against it. Or the powers of sin and death will not prevail against God is all powerful. As the church, we are under the authority of Jesus Christ. We're no longer slaves to sin and death because Jesus has conquered sin and death. And as we are filled with wisdom and revelation and come to know Him better, we fully fulfill our role in the body of Christ that He has created us for. When we understand and when we grow in maturity, we faithfully and fully fulfill our role in the body. You see, the reason why it takes mature Christians to fill the body of Christ, to be the body of Christ, is because immature people would amputate themselves and take off in a heartbeat. But mature Christians won't amputate themselves when things go bad, won't give up, won't lose heart, won't lose hope, won't take off in another direction. The point Paul is making here is none of the things that we so often fear could compare to the power of God through Jesus Christ. God's power is greater than any storm we face, any obstacle we come across, any fear or trial we may be going through. So let me ask you this. Do we understand the implications of the statement that Jesus is in control and God is all-powerful? Do we understand that here? We sang Waymaker. You're the Waymaker, you know? We sang that, but do we believe it? This means that Jesus is in control of everything. When you suddenly find yourself lost from your job or laid off from your job, Jesus is in control. When you wreck the car, Jesus is in control. When the utility bill shows up and your bank account's all zeros, Jesus is in control, meaning that he has allowed that to happen, to grow your faith in him, or to teach you something, he wants you to be spiritually mature. He's in control of everything. So he allows stuff to happen to grow us in our faith. When you're fighting with your spouse or when your teenagers are rebelling against you, he is in control. When two people you love so much turn away from their faith to substances, do I believe that Jesus is still in control? We, I do. After I had to go through this, I had to get I had to get a little growing up this week, 
little spiritual maturity learning, but I do. This is why James and Peter both tell us to count it all joy when you face various trials because God is using them to grow faith in you. God is using that situation to bring about faith in you. The thing I love about the book of Job, Job was faithful in the beginning. Job was a faithful man of God in the beginning. God took him through all that. At the end of Job, at the end of the book of Job, his faith grew exponentially. We see a man stronger in his faith at the end than at the beginning. And that's what God wants to do in the heart of every one of us, to bring us to spiritual maturity. But we have to allow that opportunity to work in us, spiritual maturity. What it comes down to this is, do I believe that God is more powerful than my circumstances? Do I believe that God is in control of my circumstances? Faith in God has grown as we come to know Him better and as we experience Him for ourselves. Like the little chicks in the nest, we must experience flight in order to learn how to fly. We must experience God working in and through us in the good times and in the bad times. We must experience His power working in and through us. We must know that He is in control in order to come to trust Him better. Spiritual growth, as I said, is absolutely necessary for the life of the believer. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray along with Paul with my prayer for this church, my prayer for each one of us, myself included. I thank God for your salvation, for your works of love. And I'm mentioning you in my prayers constantly that you would grow to know God better so you can come to trust Him more. Not to get an escape from the problems, but help through the problems. Not to be free of troubles, but as a way maker through the troubles. Amen? Let me pray for us. Dear Holy Father, Lord, we come to You this morning. Lord, forgive us when we have doubted your strength, when we have doubted that you were in control. Lord, forgive us for those times where we have tried to run instead of trusting in you, where we've run to other things, substances, pills, bottles, other people. Lord, forgive us for those times where we have doubted you and not trusted you. Lord, we pray that you would be working in our lives that you would be giving us wisdom and the spirit of revelation so that we can come to know you better each and every day. Lord, we pray that you would be working in our lives, that you would remind us that you're in control this morning. Lord, we give this all over to you. Lord, we give you control of our lives. Thank you for being our Savior, our Lord. Thank you for overcoming sin and death for us, Lord. Lord, we want to honor and glorify you with our lives this morning. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.